0: di cocaina nell'ordine complessivo delle tonnellate arrivavano a tauro nascosti nei dalla Colombia a scaricare la droga e a farla uscire sospetti
1: ci on the 6th of October 2022 300 police officers carried out coordinated raids across Italy seizing over 4 tons of cocaine with an estimated street value of over 800 million euros and this had been smuggled into the country through the port of Gioia Tauro in Calabria. According to Europol, the criminal network behind the cocaine was structured like this. The Andrangheta would organise the drug shipment from South America. Then you would have field coordinators who would recruit corrupted dock workers, paying each between 7 and 20% the value of the cargo. Then port operators would arrange for the specific contaminated containers to not be intercepted and checked when they arrived at the port. Europol announced that law enforcement carried out arrests of, and I quote, the highly professional criminal syndicate linked to the Ndrangheta, end quote, which resulted in 31 arrests, including a customs officer. This bust, although significant, is just one of many for the port of Joya Tauro.
0: Gioia Tauro alone is responsible for 97% of cocaine seizures at sea in 2021. 97% of cocaine arrived by sea, arriving in Gioia Tauro, means a monopoly of cocaine by the Drangheta in Italy. It can be any other way. So this means that one way or the other, whether directly importing cocaine or indirectly guaranteeing for other people's cocaine into Gioia Tauro, is, is essentially giving the Drangheta biggest slice of the cocaine trade into Italy, which also means some of the cocaine trade in Europe as well.
1: This is Deep Dive from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. This is the final part of our discussion with Anna Sergi, Professor of Criminology at the University of Essex, member of the GI Network of Experts and author of the new book, Chasing the Mafia, and Drangheta Memories and Journeys. In the last episode, we looked at the growth of the Ndrangheta in Canada through the Soderno Group. And in this podcast, we head back to Calabria and the cocaine gateway to Europe, the port of Gioia Tauro. Welcome to Ndrangheta. part four The Cocaine Gateway. hanno individuato e sequestrato un altro ingentissimo carico di cocaina purissima nel porto di Gia Tauro. They say they are looking for gang members in Germany, Canada and up to five in Australia. During the investigation our team traveled to Italy in order to seek assistance from the traditional organized crime experts where the Nendragata originated. Some 500 defendants, 600 lawyers and more than 900 witnesses in total. Italy's largest mafia trial in decades has begun.
0: The cellar of an unfinished house in the village of Platì had a concealed door in the wall. The carabinieri demonstrate how part of the wall can roll backwards on rails, exposing the entrance to
1: a bunker. The indragada are not just an Australian problem, they are a global problem.
0: You must have heard of Tranghiti in your native Calabria. Oh, no, I was too young when I came from Calabria, I was 17. Gioia is a very, very long waterfront, being at the beach, being uh, in the period around my birthday, which is in the middle of August. And I remember uh, hearing this noise uh, and this commotion all around me, and uh, it was very hot. It was mid-August, so it must have been extremely hot, and I, it was almost time for me to go home, uh, to go back to lunch. And uh, the usual route that I took uh, was a straight line from the beach for 10 minutes on the road to get to my uncle and auntie's house. And instead that day I couldn't because there had been a murder on the beach, uh, or well, close to where I was, but I couldn't exactly pinpoint where it was. So the whole area had been cordoned and I had to take another route. There was something about that scene that felt in my memory now, feels really wrong. So my problem at the time wasn't that someone had been murdered in the in, on the beach or in the streets, but it was that I was going to be late and that it was extremely hot and I had to walk for like double the time that normally would take me to the home. It, it felt like that kind of murder might have been a normal thing. And the reason why he felt that way, thinking about it lately and obviously rationalizing it, was because this wasn't the first time that something like that happened in Gioia Tauro. Gioia Tauro has known extremely violent periods, especially when I was a child in the in the early 90s up to the early 2000s. Joya Tauro was at the center of a, of a feud, a faida, across families for control, and especially between the Piromalli and the Molay, who eventually then became elite. So that's how the FIDA ended, with the best, uh, the best outcome, I guess, for them. But the level of violence that we were kind of exposed to, even without being directly exposed to it, because it's not like I saw it, but the way you felt it was by knowing that the FIDA was active, that these families, that there were families killing each other, because that's what FIDA means, two families in the same territory killing each other, is basically a derby. In criminal sense, and uh, being so used to it that it kind of it, it's your problem is not that there has been a murder, but that you know this murder is creating you practical problems.
1: This FIDA, which basically means an Drangata feud, was between two clans operating in Joyotaro, one of which was the Piramales. And this is a name that's come up a few times, and they are instrumental in our understanding of the history and current position of the Andrangheta. So, remember the first Andrangheta war that's come up a few times in this podcast? There was a triumvirate of really powerful Andrangheta members Antoni Macri in Soderno, Miko Tripodi in Reggio Calabria, and Momo Piramali in Giotaro. Well, Momo was the only member of the triumvirate to survive that war. And the Piramales thrived. Now, to understand the Ndrangheta in Goyotaro and their wider role in international drug trafficking, we have to tell the story of the Piramales. And I think the best place to start is the Reggio Revolt. Mass protests in the 1970s, which we briefly mentioned in the first episode. The result of these protests was investment from central government, which came to be known as the Colombo package, named after the prime minister of the time, Emilio Colombo. At the center of the Colombo package was the construction of a massive new steelworks in Joyotaro, and this caused a scramble amongst the clans for contracts and subcontracts and construction vehicles. And it was this scramble alongside things like kidnapping that helped increase tension amongst the clans, leading to the First Andrangheta War. Now, the steelworks didn't happen in the end, neither did the coal-fired power station that was going to follow it. But what did open, around 20 years later, was the huge port of Gioia one of the biggest in Italy.
0: So the investments that were made were made also in light of what what vision people had of Gioia Tauro and what Gioia Tauro port could become. So, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, the families in Gioia Tauro, one among many families, the Piromalli clan, was going through a very clear escalation of power. So the Piromallis are an entrepreneurial families. They have invested heavily in everything that has touched ground in Calabria since the 70s and abroad as well. They are among the top five families of Dendrangheta and they were also very much invested in drugs on the one end and in public works on the other. So they saw the potential of Gioia Tauro as both a drug hub and as an investment in itself. And that's exactly what they did. So on the one hand, they placed themselves with other families as the protector of the routes that were becoming the trade routes of Gioia Tauro and are today cocaine routes. So they are the guardians of the port in the sense that everyone who wants to ship uh, cocaine to uh, Gioia Tauro will uh, ask their help. And support, and they will give it to them, including other criminal groups beyond the Ndrangheta. But on the other side, part of the family invested in in the port itself by, let's say, providing construction materials, by providing the workforce, by providing, uh, by essentially uh, being invested since the very beginning of the actual construction of the infrastructure. On top of that, when the port became operational, they were in the special position to operate extortion in the port. So they they created, they ideated this again unique system of extortion whereby the company was running the port terminal, which was Med Center, accepted the racket protection racket from the families of the Ndrangheta in exchange for $1.25 each container traded. So you can imagine a port that is just starting and is set to become one of the biggest, the largest port, especially for volume of container traded in Italy, how much money is making from this container and how much money is extorted from each of these containers to Protect, let's say, Gioia Tauro and whoever worked there from criminal infiltration. So they created, they had three ways, these families, of benefiting from the port. Drugs, which obviously came with legal trade. Investing in the public work that built the port and eventually getting contracts and subcontracts out of it. And third, with this system of extortion that lasted years until it was eventually discovered and sanctioned and stopped in the the early 2000s. But the, the three ways in which these families benefited from the port makes them... In a very unique, puts them in a very unique position in the flatlands, uh, in Calabria, but overall, in general, in the Drangheta, They are among the, un, I wouldn't say untouchable, because they are very much touched by law enforcement, but their power is extremely consolidated in, and diversified. Because it's diversified in the legal and illegal areas, it's very difficult to pinpoint where their criminality ends, in a way.
1: This system of extortion that Anna talks about relates to a case known as Operation Porto. Essentially, the company who operates ship services at the port were approached by representatives of the clans, in particular the Piramali Moles and the Pesces from Rosano. They asked for $1.50 for each container passing through the port, a sort of security tax if you will, essentially a protection racket. The prosecution at the Operation Porto trial described it as the mother of all extortion. $1.50 might not seem like much, but if you think that hundreds of millions of containers are shipped around the world each year, and a large port like Joyotaro will see a lot of them. The Centre for Industrial Studies prepared a report for the European Commission in 2012 about the port of Joyotaro in part because the European Regional Development Fund had invested in its construction. In it, they say that the Andrangheta clan's international expansion during the 90s, alongside the construction of the port of Joyotaro, likely created a bonanza for organised crime. And so what about its location? The port sits between three places, Joyotaro, Rosano and San Ferdinando. This area is known as Lapiana, the flatland, an area known for its citrus trees and olive groves. This huge port perhaps looks a little out of place in comparison to its surroundings. But the close proximity to three different areas where different clans have their base has created a need to coordinate illicit activities with one another. And this coordination has become known as the Societa of Rosano a huge locale in which a number of clans operate, but within their specific areas. So the Piramali Moles in Gioia and San Ferdinando. Then you have the Bolocco and Drina, who are also in San Ferdinando. And then there's the Pesce and the Opedizanos in Rosano. And then they also work closely with the clans to the north in Vibo Valentia, like the infamous Mancusos, and the south with those based out of Reggio Calabria.
0: So the only time when the port is really visible is at night when it's completely lit up and it looks, in all, it looks so big in all its splendor at the end of the city of Joya Tauro. So when you are in the city of Joya Tauro, you only see the port if you look up and you are in certain areas which are a little bit more uphill. You don't even imagine the port there because the port is huge. It's an extremely global force. It's one of those places that completely contrasts with everything that, has, that is around it. So the port of Tauro is one of Italy's biggest ports especially for volume of transshipment. It doesn't look like it belongs there, because the town of Gioia Tauro, the La Piana, the the flatland around Gioia Tauro, which comprises the town of Rosarno, San Ferdinando, where the port extends to, because the port is very large, are extremely rural, but also extremely deprived areas. They completely clash with this idea of this global port, which is well known every else in the world, and I can tell you it's well known because everyone, everywhere I went to do research on ports, everyone knew Gioia Tauro because it is one of those important hubs of the Mediterranean, but it it, kind of feels like it's completely detached from the territory around. It didn't bring the kind of progress that ports of this size and this impact usually bring.
1: Now, we often hear about the Andrangheta being key players in the international cocaine trafficking market, and they have cultivated international connections all over the world, from extensions of their own clan in places like Canada and Australia, as we've heard, but also working with other transnational organized criminal groups like the PCC in Brazil. Além do inquérito policial que apura a ligação da mafia italiana com o PCC, o primeiro comando da capital. Or, for regular listeners to this podcast... They have a long-standing connection with Clan del Golfo in Colombia.
0: Grabó la en de del Clan del Golfo con y que a la capital del país para concretar la compra y envío a Europa de una tonelada de cocaína.
1: And then research done by the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime has also highlighted connections with groups from the Western Balkans. And so, for many, many years. The port of Joyotaro has been one of the main cocaine gateways into Europe.
0: When I was writing the book, we were just in the pandemic and uh, there was a lot of confusion on obviously how the criminal markets were reacting to the pandemic, the closure of, of certain ports, the slowing down on other ports. And we were in Italy, we were coming out of a period where because of some issues the Gioia Tauro as a legal company, the legal company running run Gioia Tauro had, so they went bankrupt and uh, they were under a, a special commission So the port lost during 2017, 2018. They lost a lot of trade. And by losing this trade, that also meant less cocaine (laughs) for the local clans, which essentially also meant moving out of Gioia Tauro and choosing other ports for cocaine shipments. These were the ports of Genova, the ports of Livorno, other ports in Italy, which uh, instead received the kind of trade and uh, routes that Gioia Tauro lost. But since 2019, things completely change again, and during the pandemic, they skyrocket. Uh, Gioia Tauro today, according to the latest figures from the anti-drug unit of the Carabinieri, which was released a few months ago and relates to the period of 2021, is only Gioia Tauro, Gioia Tauro alone, is responsible for 97% of cocaine seizures at sea in 2021, so that means that 97 percent of cocaine that arrived in 19- 2021 arrived that arrived by sea arrived in Gioia Tauro. This is a record number. We never had this kind of numbers uh, before, which essentially confirms on the one end that during the pandemic things shifted back again, but also confirmed that Gioia Tauro has gained back its primary role, not just in cocaine, but also in the legal trade, because the two things go together. So 97% of cocaine arrived by sea, arriving in Gioia Tauro, means a monopoly of cocaine by the Drangheta in Italy. It can be any other way. So this means that one way or the other, whether directly importing cocaine or indirectly guaranteeing for other people's cocaine into Gioia Tauro is is essentially giving the Ndrangheta biggest slice of the cocaine trade into Italy, which also means some of the cocaine trade in Europe as well, because not all the cocaine that arrives in Gioia Tauro is destined to Italy, of course.
1: When the cocaine does arrive on one of these massive cargo ships. And bear in mind that 750 million containers are shipped around the world every year. But only around 2% of containers are actually inspected. And according to a recent report from the European Monitoring Centre for Drugs and Drug Addiction and Europol, the European cocaine retail market is estimated to be worth at least 10.5 billion euros. So the question is how much of this goes to clans like the Piramalis.
0: This is a very difficult question to answer because we don't actually know what position they have. We do know that however that the Piramalis are a family which keeps its double soul intact. So on the one end they keep investing in local works, public works, including recently, 2020, parts of the family members were arrested for investing in reconstruction of the waterfront of Joya Taur. So still the same kind of uh, business of construction and uh, public works. But at the same time, they are investing in a series of import-export businesses like olive oil which we know of as being confirmed, into the United States, for example, within which they also engage in drug trade. What they seem to do, however, is not directly being involved in the drug trade. They don't import cocaine themselves necessarily. What they do is to act as guarantors, meaning that they provide the infrastructures and the money, if needed, the advance needed for other families of the local area who want to be invested in drugs. Put it more simply, they are way too evolved as Andrangheta family to have their hands too dirty with drugs. They aim to look like professionals, uh, entrepreneurs. They are not necessarily the kind of family that wants to be seen as investing in drugs anymore. They are beyond that. But because of the port and the role in the port, they tend to want to be involved, whether or not they end to be involved, that's another story, but they want to be involved in everything that goes around the port, legally and illegally. And people think that they are involved. That's the issue. So if you were to go and invest in Joya Tauro in, let's say, something related to uh, infrastructure and construction, a road or a railway into the port, you would assume that you have to get their approval, even if... You might get away with it if you don't, because things are not as they used to be in the past. But there is this assumption that they control or they want to control the activities. So if you don't go out and look for their approval now, they might come back later and they probably will or try to. But with drugs, it's more about providing access to the port and getting a cut on everyone else's business, essentially, which is something that also other families in the area do, like the Mancuso family. They don't invest in drugs directly. They don't import. Or if they do, they tend to be as far as they can be from the official line of drug supply.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting that because, and this is a slightly strange example, but when I was studying history, I remember studying the American West, and we were talking about the gold rush. And there was this famous idea that pe- the people who made all of the money were not necessarily the people searching for the gold. It was the people selling them the spades. So it was the people who were able to control the kind of tools that were needed to provide that service.
0: Absolutely. But that's really where very much what the Ndrangheta is in today's cocaine trade in Europe. And that's why it never really appeared as the obvious actor because they are not the most involved actor they are the actors that provide the money they provide the access they provide the car they provide the phone they provide the know-how and obviously if you are law enforcement and you're looking at disrupting cocaine shipment. You are very lucky already if you know who the traffickers are you can't have necessarily you don't have necessarily the resources to go up to the to the investors and go up to the helpers and go up and it's really difficult to point at the criminal activities here if you have you know someone who is very clearly involved in the trafficking of drugs. How would you argue that those who provide the access are more important? So it's really difficult to prove. And obviously, sometimes, most of the time, it's a cross-border issue. So that's why when people say the Ndrangheta controls the cocaine trade, yes and no. I don't believe anyone can control the cocaine trade. There are too many nodes. But at the same time, I do see why the Italian law enforcement is always very adamant to say by controlling this type of access and this type of resources, they are the most active enablers of certain areas or certain nodes of the cocaine trade. So, you know, there is truth in both statements, I would say.
1: And that's it for this episode of Deep Dive and the end of our Andrangheta world tour. A massive thank you to Anna Sergi for being our guide through this complex and murky world. Anna's book, Chasing the Mafia and Drangheta Memories and Journeys, is available now. If you want more research into organised crime, visit the GI's website, globalinitiative.net. This has been Deep Dive from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. Thanks for listening.